0: Our scripture reading for today is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and for the sake of dishonest gain. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning.
1: What do you think about the idea of taking 20 to 25 toddlers, preschoolers, and putting them into a large room, oh, for, say, about four hours all by themselves? Would you like... to have that little guy all by himself for four hours with other kids. Ever chat with a a preschooler a toddler? Do they have ideas about what they want? Yes. Do they have a, a clear notion of what they think is best and what is right? Do they have feelings? Genuine feelings. Yes, they do. But in spite of the fact that they have ideas, in spite of the fact that they are convinced that they know what is best and their feelings are genuine, this does not mean that their way is the best way. It does not make it so. And and so we have parents, parents to help train and raise up kids to understand how to live. The book of Judges has many different messages, but one of those messages that's very clear is that adults left unsupervised are not much better than the kids. We're going to look at several stories in the book of Judges, and we'll start in Judges chapter 14. And notice how Samson is described in this text. Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Samson has gone and seen this Philistine woman, a woman who's been raised in in a Philistine town. She's been raised with other gods. She's been raised with ways of thinking and values that do not belong to God's people. And Samson, as he looks at this woman, goes, she's the one for me. Now, God has told his people not to marry outside of them because the people that they marry will change them. They will bring influences in that will get them off track. But Samson goes, she's the right one. In my eyes, she's it. Get her for me. And Samson's determination to marry that Philistine, and he does, It's going to bring a lot of suffering. It's going to bring a lot of pain. The good news is that God is greater than even the chaos that people can create. And he can even take that and use it and work it for his purposes. That's Judges chapter 14. Come to Judges 17, we're introduced to a fellow named Micah. This guy is a hoot. He's going to steal 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. Then he hears his mom give a curse on whoever stole the silver pieces. So Micah decides that what he needs to do now, he needs to confess that he took it and give it back to his mom. So he he. he tells his mom, I took it, and here it is. I'll give all of the the silver that I stole from you back to you. Now, mom has a good idea. Mom is going to say, you know what? I'm so grateful to God that I've gotten, I've received what was stolen back. I'm going to take 200 pieces of my silver, and I'm going to make a little silver image with it to thank God. Micah is going to make a shrine in his house. He takes the little silver image made out of 200 of those pieces, and he puts that in part of his shrine. He also makes other household gods. He makes an ephod. And in the text, the only ephod described for a, like a priest is for the high priest. But he makes an ephod for his shrine. He grabs one of his sons and ordains him as a priest. A little bit later on, a Levite will come by, and Micah will upgrade his shrine. He takes the Levite and has him be his priest, who's gone from his son now to a Levite. And the text ends with this comment. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own This is the author's comment on the story we have just heard. Everyone doing what they think is best, what their good idea is, what their solution is for how to live and how to move forward. That's what Micah did. That's what his mom did. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Judges chapter 18, the next chapter... We learn about 600 warriors. They're, they're from the tribe of Dan, and they, they are moving, looking for a spot for their families. They pass by, and they come to Micah's place with his little shrine. And, now, remember, these are God's people. They steal. They steal the ephod. They steal the silver image. They steal the household gods. And then they talk to the Levite that's there and say, hey, you know, uh, we'd like to offer you a promotion. Right now you're serving one family. What we'd like to do is we would like to make you uh, a priest for our whole tribe. So would you like an upgrade? The Levite thinks this is a great idea because now he's going to be supported by not just one family but a whole tribe. So he says yes. And we're... This story is introduced with the comment in chapter 18 and verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And when we understand what the author is telling us, there's no leadership. Everyone is doing what's right in his own eyes. What their good ideas are. What they think is best. Chapter 19 begins with the phrase... There was no king in Israel. And again, we understand that, the, that what this means is there's no leadership, and hence everyone is doing what they think is right. And this is the introduction to a story of a Levite and his concubine who are traveling. They, they are, they're headed back to home, and um, as this Levite's going along, he sees a foreign city, a city dominated by foreigners, not Israelites, and he goes, let's bypass that. You know, you never know what might happen there. Let's press on and go to an Israelite city. So he goes and he ends up at Gibeah. And there is an old man who finds him in the center of the uh, town at nightfall. And says, oh, you don't have any place? Come on in. Come into my house. So the Levite and, and this concubine go to their house. And, and nightfall descends. And then when, under darkness... There's suddenly all this commotion outside as some people of the city attack the house and they want the Levite to be pushed outdoors. they want the woman to be pushed outdoors so they can do whatever they want with them. Now the man in the house says, "Don't do this." The Levite, when he sees that this is not going to end, that they're going to insist on this, um, his good idea is to take the woman and push her out and lock the door. In the morning, she's at the doorstep, and she's dead. He then puts her body on his animal, goes home. She's obviously been hurt badly. So he cuts her body up into 12 pieces sends those messages throughout the 12 tribes and says, look at this. This is what the people of Gibeah did. What do you think we ought to do? All of Israel's horrified that such a thing could happen in Israel. They all come together and they say, we're going to handle this city. Now, Gibeah is a Benjamite city. The tribe of Benjamin says, hey, wait a minute. You can't come and attack one of our cities. We're going to defend them. So you have a war in Israel Of all the tribes against the tribe of Benjamin. End of story. Benjamin's basically wiped out. All that is left are a few hundred men. No wives. Everyone's wiped out except for a few hundred men. The 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 tribes now mourn because they've basically wiped out one of the tribes of Israel. And someone goes, You know what? We've got I got an idea. We're about to have a festival, the annual festival is about to happen. Uh, why don't we all go there and we'll bring our daughters to it. And so they have this festival and their daughters there are dancing and there's a plan. And while the daughters are out there dancing and enjoying themselves, these several hundred of men are hiding in the bushes. They simply run out, they kidnap each man, a woman, and take her away to be his wife. And the story ends, the book of Judges ends with this statement hanging in the air. In in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When everyone does what they think is best, the community can unravel. What God's people need is godly leadership. And in the law, God provided for a godly leader for his nation that was supposed to live in holy ways. And so in in Deuteronomy, God gave Moses instructions for the leader that was to be for this holy nation, that was to live for God and be an example of, of the people of God to others. This kingdom of priests that would influence others. They need to live in a particular way. And God made provisions for their leadership. Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And the text goes on to say, you know, you can't get one of them foreigners. You you get someone who's been raised worshiping Baal. That's not going to happen. No, he's got to be one of your people. And he goes on, only he must not acquire many horses for himself. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. No, the, the king, there's some things about this kingdom, this is kingship, um, that the king can't get all these sources of power, all these things that he can hold and hang on to, and makes, look at me, what I can do, and the power that I wield. Nor can he make all those, and kings made these political alliances, that they would, they would marry the daughter of other kings, of other rulers, of other peoples. And you see, that, that's a pretty good plan because that king is not going to attack you while his daughter's living in your palace. No, the king cannot acquire many wives, they're going to lead him astray. All this foreign influence coming in, changing God's people, that's not to happen. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. We want a good copy of the law. Here's his plan for the first hundred days. What are you going to accomplish in the first hundred days? You're going to write a book of the law and you're going to have God's word. And the text continues. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all his words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." See, God's king was not just to be another person. It could not just be any person who would do what was right in their own eyes. What my good thinking says. No, leadership is not to be based on the cleverness of a human. Nor is it on the insightful political reasoning to navigate winds of change. That's not who God is looking for. Rather, God's great leadership is going to be anchored in understanding and following God's ways. You know the word, and you stay there. A quick example of someone that God chose. When God chose Saul, who was Saul? Saul, the first king? He was someone who was so insecure, he's going to hide in the baggage. Who is Saul dependent on? not himself the only one he can be dependent on is on the Lord because he knows it ain't him and God goes that's the guy I want he doesn't think he's clever he doesn't think he's got all the answers but I want a person who fears and is going to know that I am God and is going to need me now what happens with Saul he has some victories it goes to his head now who does Saul become Saul becomes hey I'm going to set up a monument to myself Oh, he disobeys God because he's going to take things into his hands because I know how it needs to be. And what does God go do? I can't use you anymore. I'm taking the kingdom away from you and I'm taking it away from your family and I'm going to give it to someone else because I can't use that. Who does he get? He gets David, a man who is devoted to God. He's not perfect. He sins. He repents. But he's a person who depends on God and not his own thinking God's king was not just to be another person who would do what was right in his own eyes well that was a political scenario that's the scenario of a a nation and the leadership God gave for a nation we move into the New Testament we find that God's people are described as being part of this church a church that God has established and set up, and it's based on its son who makes it possible. And in that context, we also have descriptions of leadership. Paul's going to write a letter to Titus. And, and from what we can understand, Titus is there on the island of Crete. A number of churches have been set up on this island of Crete. And it appears... That that Titus is running around, trying to play hero, trying to solve and keep all these churches in order. And so what Paul does is he writes a letter to Titus on, on Crete. And he says, let me remind you of something, Titus. The reason why I left you in Crete was so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now let's get back on track. And, and what your job, you or you should be focused, is getting this leadership in place. You need to have appoint these elders in, in all the different towns, and it 's not just any person is going to do god 's people do not need leaders who are doing whatever they think is right in their own eyes. Rather, Paul will describe the characteristics and qualities of the type of person who could serve in a guiding, teaching, and mentoring capacity. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in healthy doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Not just any person is going to do. God's people do not need leaders who are following what their great ideas are, but they need leaders who have these characteristics and qualities of of people who are dedicated to serving God And who know that message, the word, and they're following it. And they're helping others follow it. And if there's ideas that crop up and people have their good ideas, they can rebuke and they can show this is not God's way, even though it sounds pretty good. They need to know what that word is. In In this letter of Paul to Titus, Paul's going to use two different terms to describe this person. One is the word elder. The other is overseer. And so we have these two different terms that are describing the same function within the church. And these are two different, if you will, metaphors for that leadership position. One being an elder and the other being an overseer. Well, the New Testament is actually going to use three different interchangeable metaphors. Three different interchangeable descriptions for this function of leading God's people. Acts chapter 20 verses 27 and 28, we have some of these. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Paul calls for the elders. And then as he talks with them, he says, watch out for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's that elders and overseers. He says, to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with his own son. So we have this idea of a pastor, a shepherd. We have this idea of an overseer. We have this idea of an elder. Again, Peter will do the same thing in First Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And this, again, this idea of, a, of an elder, a shepherd, an overseer. So, so why these different designations? Why different metaphors to describe this function of a leader, the same person? Well, it's actually quite wonderful. These terms of leadership originate from three different societal backgrounds. And, and different people would relate very strongly to one or, or more of these different descriptions. These metaphors, these descriptions, encompass a number of qualities and leadership styles. So let's take a look at them quickly. Let's, we'll start with elders, also known as presbyters. In the original language, it's presbyteros. Well, if you take that and you make it into an English form, you come out with presbyter but the meaning of it is elder. It's from, from the Bible, we're very familiar with this language about elders and, and leadership. Um, Deuteronomy five seven in the Old Testament, you have the elders are sitting in the city gate, you know that place of where judgments are made, where decisions are made, where business is handled. You have the elders in that city gate, and they're handling what's going on in that city. Then we get into the New Testament, you have... In reference to the elders of Israel, right? You know, you have several different groups of people who are against Jesus, and one of them is the elders. These leaders in Israel, along with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they too are opposed to Jesus. And we also have um, the elders of, of Israel in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 16. Um, Those who were the leaders of, of Israel back in the time of Moses. Well, in a society shaped by male leadership, elders were these respected older men who by their wisdom and experience had attained social influence. And Paul is going to tell Titus that elders need to be those who hold firmly to God's word and are capable of communicating its ideas. Another term that's used is overseer. Sometimes it's translated as bishop. Overseer, bishop, same word. Well, long before this became a church term, the Greeks described episkopoi as these onlookers. And that's what this episkopoi means. It's an onlooker, someone who's watching. And these were people who graciously watched over and they protected other people. This was a largely urban term in cities where you have these different individuals who are taking care of other things or people. They would oversee finances. They would oversee shipment of goods. These were the onlookers, the overseers. And eventually this onlooker idea... Uh, came to be associated with an office of those assigned the responsibility of caring for someone or something. We might think of the word manager, the one who has a project, the one who has something that they're responsible for and taking care of it, making sure it all goes well. Well, that's this onlooker, this overseer idea. Well, within the Greco-Roman urban church context, describing someone as an overseer aptly communicated that someone had been charged with the responsibility of guarding and seeking the congregation's well-being. This brings us to the, the third description. Shepherds, or pastors. When it comes to rural leadership, there are not many metaphors that are native to the countryside for leadership. However, the picture of a shepherd who's guiding and leading and caring for his sheep is a strong one. And these shepherds or pastors provide a rich tapestry of leadership, evoking care, concern, guidance, protection for that flock. It seems only natural that in a religious community, arising out of a variety of backgrounds, God would use various terms for leadership that would communicate this protective and caring leadership to describe those older men who were following God's leading in order that they might pastor and oversee the church's spiritual health and service to God. Before coming here, I I preached in California for a number of years. And while I was there, I was not a pastor. I was not an elder. I was not an overseer. I I was a preacher. And today it becomes really common to speak of the preacher as the pastor. Well, I'd just like to make, suggest that if we use biblical words in biblical ways, we'll avoid promoting confusion. And in scripture, the pastor is the elder, is the overseer. That's the language within the text. So, it is true that God's people need godly leadership. But it's also true that God's leaders need godly sheep. And here are just some quick instructions. Appreciate those who diligently labor among us and who have charge over us in the Lord, giving us instruction. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. As sheep, We are to esteem highly and to appreciate and express that to those who are our leaders, our shepherds, those that are guiding us. This is one of our responsibilities as sheep. Hebrews chapter 13, the text that was read earlier, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Be submissive and obey. And that means following, even when I want to eat the grass that's just beyond that fence. It's my good idea. Man, if we could just get over here and get this little patch of grass over here, we're going to be doing great. And the shepherd goes, Uh uh-uh, uh, we're not going to that little patch of grass over there, but I want that patch of grass. And this text is saying, No, wait a minute. You follow the guidance of that shepherd, they're charged with taking care of you spiritually. 1 Timothy 5:19. do not even listen to an accusation against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. This is one of our responsibilities as sheep, godly sheep. Also, uh, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. As sheep, we cannot afford to be passive, but we must be actively seeking to grow and to become the people that God wants us to be, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we have a conc- we have concrete examples of, of what this should look like. We can look to our, our shepherds, our overseers, our bishops, our, our elders, our presbyters. And, and they should provide us with an example of how we need to be growing, what we're growing toward. Now, Nobody's perfect. They're not perfect. This is not putting some huge burden on them. But they've committed themselves to grow and to live for God. And as such, they can provide examples for us. Provide a concrete picture of what we can seek to become. One of our responsibilities as sheep is to imitate those living with faith. Well, God's people need godly leadership. The eldership is not a human idea. God knows that his community needs godly leadership. And so he blesses it and, provide, and made provisions for godly leadership for his people. Those that are to be guiding the flock. And all of us grow one baby step at a time. It may be this morning that you're not part of this flock. That's part of a much larger flock. Um, It may be that you are not yet a child of God. And if that's the case, let's talk. I'd love to sit down with you and let's just open the text or or look at those questions that you might have and, and go from there. All of us have broken lives. But through Jesus, God desires to make us new and give us a new life and eternal hope. And he offers all this in grace because none of us deserve it. And if we're convinced of the truthfulness that Christ has died for us and has been raised up again, God desires that we acknowledge this, that we acknowledge Christ, that that we rely on him and express that faith by trusting in him and being buried with him in baptism and raised up into the new life that God's power makes possible. And that is by grace. As he claims us as his people and forgives us of our sins. This morning, if, if you have some prayer request or some need, we now have that opportunity for you to come. I'll be standing and sing.
0: Run.